You're listening to the Harvest Time Podcast. We hope this message helps you know God in a real and powerful way. If you are in the Fort Smith area, we would love to see you in one of our services on Saturdays at 6 p.m. or Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Enjoy the message. The roar of the rugged cross, a sound that would not only quake the earth, but heaven and even hell. A sound that would simultaneously rip the veil, the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, and also open the pathway to the realm of the presence of God himself. A sound that would raise the dead as they would exit their tombs and begin to walk among the living. And yet, yet what was this roar? What was this sound? It was three words. Three words cried aloud and then followed by a deafening silence. Things stopped and changed that day. You can take your seats. That cry was a cry of substance, not so much in its presence, but in its absence, what it, what it did away with. An absence so full that it filled every void in both the natural and spiritual worlds. And we're going to get to what was gone and, and the cry that vanquished it in a moment as we follow Jesus' last days on his way to the cross. But on the way to that cross, he went through other places, had other encounters. And we want to pass through those first as well. As we walk through the four Gospels tonight on this journey, in the final moments of the Passion Week, we're going to visit four places that Jesus was that night. And in each place, we want to see who was there and see something that he reveals about himself uniquely in that place and to those. It begins in a room, begins in an upper room, uh, a place Jesus likely had been before. It had been prepared for the Passover, and uh, perhaps he had even celebrated Passover here before. The upper room was typically the sweet sleeping quarters of of a family in in that uh, era, in that time. But tonight, it wasn't it wasn't for sleeping tonight, it was for hosting a party. It was, it was the time to celebrate the Passover, and in that room were Jesus' closest disciples, the ones that we would later call apostles, the, the heroes, the giants of the faith. And, and yet in that moment, in that room, they seemed like anything but as it, they revealed how far their hearts were from the heart of God. They had followed him. They had lived with him for three years. They had heard every message he had taught. And yet it's very evident and very easy to identify their selfishness by their their jockeying for position, their comparisons and rankings, and, and even their unwillingness to serve each other so that Jesus himself takes up a pitcher of water, picks up a towel, and begins to wash their feet. And in that room... Christ identified himself as our humble servant. The creator God of the universe, incarnate in human form, now kneeling in front of and washing the feet of his very followers. And then comes the Passover. Exodus chapter 12 gives us the instructions for the Passover. It's the the same instructions that had been followed by every Hebrew for the previous 1,400 years. The same ones that Jesus and his disciples had followed. A lasting ordinance and a remembrance of the final meal they would ever eat as Egyptian slaves. 
Four cups of wine were part of the feast, and each cup represented one of the four I will statements that God gave Moses when he was delivering Israel. We find it in Exodus chapter 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. The first cup is the cup of sanctification, remembering that we are chosen, that we are set apart, that God separates us out, has a purpose for us. I will bring you out, God promises. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt. Jesus was delivered to the executioners that you and I could be delivered from our bondage. I will free you from being slaves, God promises. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Though we largely live our lives apart from him, ignoring him, running from him, still we are bought back, our full price paid I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, God promises. And the fourth cup, the cup of praise, Hallel in Hebrew, hallelujah, a celebration. What greater joy than to to be restored to original design, to, to be restored to unashamed relationship and full fellowship with our creator, God. I will be your God and you will be my people, God promises. Sadly, that's not where we often find ourselves, is it? And it's certainly not the position that the disciples found themselves in in that room. No, we find ourselves apart from him, ashamed, self-centered, living life our way, ignoring him or sometimes even against him, more concerned with our lives, our goals, more concerned with our to-do list, our comfort, our possessions, or our status than we are his purpose for our life. We need to be bought back. We need a redeemer. It was that third cup after supper that Jesus blessed in that room, the cup of redemption. And from the first gospel of Matthew, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's house, in my Father's kingdom. In that room, our hope was revealed, a hope that that had been expected from the time of creation, a hope proclaimed by God to Adam and Eve when he said, one born of woman is going to crush the very source of this sin and separation. Jesus identifies himself in that moment as that hope. And he foretells the full purpose of his life that's about to be realized in an ultimate moment. The supper was finished, but our sin and theirs remained. They exited the room together. They crossed over the creek and entered a garden, a grove of olive trees on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem, a place Jesus had been many times. And in the second gospel, Mark tells us what happens in that quiet place. They went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell 
on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to them, Peter, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know what to answer him and caught again. He came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He he enters that garden with 12. He moves on a little bit deeper into the garden with three. And then he goes on further himself alone. It's almost as if he's leaving watchmen along the path so that so that he can focus, so that he can battle deep in the spirit without the natural distractions or the distraction of, of being sensitive to the coming moment that he's fully aware of and dreadfully expecting. A solitary moment, a moment to express an intensely desired petition, a solemn request. He who is our hope was holding on to a hope that there was another way for him. He enters a place that he had to enter alone. And who is there? No one except the one, God himself. In the garden, just hours after saying in the upper room, I have eagerly desired to drink this cup, Jesus now prays to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't do it just once or twice, but three times. And in that moment, he identifies himself as the fully human Son of man with a will of his very own. How many times are we in that garden? How many times are we in a solemn or solitary place where God only sees? And we know who we are, we know whose we are, we know what he has called us to, yet we have a will of our own. How often do we come to the moments where our will and God's will will cross? Is there hope that we as human? can overcome the power of our own will, to take up our cross daily and say with Christ, not my will, but yours be done, not for my goals, but for your purpose, not for myself, but for all those around me, whatever the path, whatever the test, I will follow you as the full son of man, though he was in the garden alone, he was there for every man, and in that garden, he identified himself as God's obedient son, finishing the prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. And so the prayer was finished, his cart was committed, but yet an assignment remained. After Judas betrays him, he he leaves that garden bound and in the custody of his enemies. He's taken to the high priest who has already prejudged him because they've been looking Uh, for a reason to kill him for months, if not years already. Because they were under Roman rule, though, they could not execute without Rome's approval. And so he's falsely accused quickly, and he's delivered to Pilate, the Roman prefect over all of occupied Judea. From a room with his disciples, 
through a garden alone, he now stands in a palace surrounded by accusers, haters, and the violent servants of evil. The palace, a place he likely had never been. For the king of kings came not to rule over us, but to rule from within us. He came not on a horse with armies of angels behind him, but he came to a stable as a baby that would grow to be the man that would now stand condemned and judged by men. Judged by Caiaphas, the priest, then Pilate, then Herod, and now sent back to Pilate one more time. And in that place he stands, surrounded and yet abandoned. And Luke records in the third gospel that Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I'll release him. How kind of him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd and with one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I'll have him flogged and release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. The crowd roared against the Son of God, but that roar was, was not the one that would forever change the destiny of mankind. No, that was just the sound check that was, that was leading up to it. it. It came first. The cry of crucify would only set the stage for the final cry that would overwhelm and crush the very evil trying at that moment to silence it through crucifixion. Crucify him. Crucify him, they cried. Why was this necessary? Why the death of the Son of God? And the answer is back in the garden. Not Gethsemane where we just were, but the very first garden in Eden, in the very moment that we stepped out in sin to defy God and pursue life our own way, there was death. The very first to die was an animal. Its blood was shed by God himself to cover our shame with its skin as clothing. I can't even imagine Adam and Eve's horror in response when the gravity of that moment and the consequence of their actions set in. Because after all, until that moment, all that had ever been was life. Nothing had ever died. And they're witnessing the first death to cover their shame, their sin. God made that first sacrifice. And every sacrifice since, including the celebrations of Passover that happened every year, was a replication offered by men, petitioning the one true holy God to overlook our sin in just one more year, cover us, and have mercy. But the God who made the first sacrifice was also going to make the final one. For our death, though it was deserved, could never restore life. And his, though undeserved, was our only hope of life. 
You see, the sin was ours. The judgment was ours. The punishment earned by our selfishness and our sinfulness. We are guilty. He is holy. Yet he took our sin and was reckoned with the sinful. Falsely convicted in a kangaroo court at night, an abuse of both Roman and Jewish law, he submitted to this judgment. Previously in the garden, when one of his disciples pulled a sword to try to defend him, he said, put it away. This is a cup I must drink, and it's even from my father. In John 10, earlier he had foretold how he would willingly go. He said, no one can take my life. I lay it down. He went of his own accord, and in that palace revealed himself as our willing substitute in our place the innocent for the guilty. The violent mob cried crucify and they persisted until Pilate sentenced him to die an undeserved death, rightfully ours. The trial was finished, but the final sacrifice remained. From a room with those who loved him to a garden with the God who sent him to a palace with those who despised him, he's now taken to the place of his execution a place that he was born to visit. And all were there. Everyone was there. The the persecutors, the haters, the believers, the followers, some of them nearby and and some of them following still from a distance. The, The hopeful, the critics, the doubters, the curious, just want to know what's happening. They were all there. And you were there. And I was there. We read it earlier from the the book of Isaiah that that our every misstep, our every sin, our deviance, our rejection, our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, it was all laid on him. We were all there. The full penalty of every sin of every human that had ever lived or ever would live was present in that moment, in that place, to be satisfied once for all and for always. Do we even grasp what happened in that place? The fulfillment of the cup of redemption that was promised in that upper room. The fulfillment of the commitment of not my will that was prayed in that garden. The fulfillment of the conviction for our sin pronounced over him in that palace would now be realized on that cross. Do we realize what the cross was and what it did? And do we know how fully it was accomplished? Sacrifice was required, a pure and a spotless sacrifice. And the God who covered us in the first sacrifice now gives his one and only begotten Son. And on that cross, Christ became our sacrifice. Nailed to that beam and hung between heaven and earth in our place, Jesus would soon take his final breath. But first... In the fourth gospel, John records something Jesus said that would literally shake the universe. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. When we view all four gospel accounts we, of this moment, we find that 
he found the strength to raise himself because crucifixion was an asphyxiation death. He found the strength to raise himself enough to breathe so he could speak at least seven times. And before this very final phrase, he had committed his life, his spirit, to the Father God. Before this final phrase, he had forgiven us of the wrong done against him. And in this final phrase, it was no whisper. He had raised himself enough for one last cry. And those last words were spoken in a manner as though he was proclaiming it not just for those present, but to echo through all of history. It is finished. With a loud cry came that roar. And we may not fully comprehend how the universe was ripped the day that we sinned and defied God in that garden. But we can see how tattered our world is today. We may never fully understand what we brought in death through that sin, but we can see how our lives are impacted. We can see the wages of death, disease, dysfunction, division in our own lives and in our own relationships. But can I tell you tonight that to continue to live in those things is to live deceived, bound by a non-existent chain, an invisible chain, because sin has no victory. Death has no sting. It was defeated once for all. And as he cried out, it is finished. Our separation from God, the penalty of our sin, its power over us, its deception, its bondage was all defeated in that cry. And even when our own heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We are fully restored, our debt fully paid. On that cross, as our sacrifice, Jesus became our Savior. All who trust in him can live free, can live full in his grace, a costly grace. And if you're ready to live full and live free in that grace tonight, when we join together in just a moment to take that cup like he did in that room and to remember the sacrifice, do so with the full assurance that his life, his death, his resurrection was for you and was for me. Do so knowing how fully he completed it. There's no penalty left to pay. God isn't waiting for us to clean up our act. He's not waiting for us to start this or to stop that, to say a certain phrase or perform a certain ritual. No, we simply believe he did this for me. It is finished. And the sky went dark and then the heavens split with lightning. The earth quaked. The tombs opened up. But more importantly, the presence of God was opened as the veil tore and we have access to his presence. Our sin fully forgiven. It is finished. In that moment, he broke the chains, freed us from bondage, redeemed us with a mighty hand and restored us as his people as promised in Exodus 6. And all was finished. Nothing remained. Well, nothing but the celebration. Nothing but the new life. Nothing but the joy set before him. For death had no power to hold the sinless life. But before we celebrate that new life this weekend, we come to this night where we remember all that the cross finished for us. For you, for me. All he has freed us from and all he now gives to us 
let us remember. But let us also remember not just what he's done, but who he is. Remember the servant from the upper room. Remember God's obedient son from the garden. Remember our substitute in conviction in that palace. And remember on that cross our sacrifice, our Savior. We remember. Tonight, we remember. Thanks again for listening today. You can learn more about our church at harvesttime.net or by following us on Instagram. To stay up to date with more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe. We'll see you next time.